Welcome to the Waterstone Community Church Podcast. We are now in the sermon series of Ezekiel, which is the story of a leader called to deal with catastrophe. When Israel was invaded by Babylon, Ezekiel found himself in exile, living among his displaced people who refused to see what was right before their eyes. God reveals his purposes in some of the most wild and unforgettable images in the Bible. To learn more about Waterstone, please visit waterstonechurch.org. We are located off C-470 in Bowles in Littleton, Colorado. Services are on Saturdays at 5.30 p.m. and Sundays at 9 and 10.30 a.m. A reading from the book of Ezekiel. He said to me, Son of man, stand up on your feet and I will speak to you. As he spoke, the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet and I heard him speaking to me. He said, Son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, and whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious people, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them or their words. Do not be afraid, though briars and thorns are all around you, and you live among scorpions. Do not be afraid of what they say or be terrified by them, though they are a rebellious people. You must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are rebellious. But you, son of man, listen to what I say to you. Do not rebel like that rebellious people, Open your mouth and eat what I give you. Then I looked, and I saw a hand stretched out to me, and it was a scroll, which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. And he said to me, Son of man, eat what is before you. Eat this scroll, then go and speak to the people of Israel." So I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. Then he said to me, Son of man, eat this scroll I am giving you, and fill your stomach with it. So I ate it, and it tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard behind me a loud rumbling sound as the glory of the Lord rose from the place where it was standing. It was the sound of the wings of the living creatures brushing against each other and the sound of the wheels beside them, a loud rumbling sound. The Spirit then lifted me up and took me away, and I went in bitterness and in the anger of my spirit with the strong hand of the Lord on me. I came to the exiles who lived at Tel Aviv near the Kibar River, and there where they were living, I sat among them for seven days, deeply distressed. The word of the Lord. Hail to the graduates. Do we have any uh, high school graduating seniors in the room or college graduates? Would you stand up, please, so we can properly embarrass you? There's some over there. All right. Wow. Well done. Well done. Okay. For the rest of you, how many of you can remember uh, 
Well, how many of you can remember that you were once in high school? Raise your hand. All right, keep your hands up. You were once in high school. All right, how many of you can remember who the speaker was at your high school commencement? Oh, boy. A lot of, okay. How many of you can remember what the speaker said at your high school commencement? All right, couple. Yeah, <laughs> Dwight was a speaker. <laughs> That's cheating, Dwight. <laughs> That's good. Well, I've got good news for the rest of us. Ezekiel has a commencement address for us today. Right? Every weekend is resurrection weekend, and which means when you leave here, it's commencement. It's the beginning of the rest of your life. And so Ezekiel has a commencement address, address for us today. Here it is. Here it is. When you leave here, you will go out into the world and encounter a lot of problems. But the greatest challenge you will have in life is God. That's Ezekiel's commencement address for Waterstone Community Church. I'd like to talk about that address. Two things. The reason it's so hard is because God calls us to a mission. The mission of God is to see his glory in all nations. For us to carry out that mission is gonna hurt. Sacrifice, commitment, giving, suffering, persecution, witness. It's going to cost us. The mission of God, therefore, requires courage, prophetic courage. And so I'd like to talk about this mission and the prophetic courage required to carry out the mission. Are you with me? That's where Ezekiel wants to take us today. The mission of God. We wanna locate Ezekiel in a historical context. Ezekiel is written to a specific critical time in Israel's history, namely their decline. It's from 600 BC to 580 BC. Number of things going on. Israel is on the very western edge of the Assyrian Empire in a small gaggle of states there um, that are being bounced around between trying to stay alive by pledging allegiance to Egypt which is an aging empire and shrinking, or pledging allegiance to Assyria, which is a far extended empire, too extended for their military, and they will soon fall because, dun da da have you heard of Babylon? They are the up-and-coming one, a king called Nebuchadnezzar, a fierce, aggressive king. He has now begun to fight both Assyria and Egypt. In fact, 
Well, Assyria took out the northern tribes of Israel in 722 BC. The southern piece of Israel, the tribe of Judah, the southern kingdom, has been able to stay united because they've had a few godly kings and very good politicians. But even now, Israel's trying to decide if they're going to align with Egypt or Assyria. But Assyria and Egypt form an alliance in 605 BC to try and stop Babylon. In this infamous battle, the Battle of Carchemish, Babylon takes down Egypt and Assyria. With those pushed aside, King Nebuchadnezzar now sets his sights on the western edge of the empire and he begins to deal with Israel. In 601 BC, the last king of Israel, Jehoiakim, decides to rebel, a very costly decision. Nebuchadnezzar says enough is enough. He comes in and he carries off 10,000 Israelites, which was the Nebuchadnezzar way. He would take the best and brightest out of the cities, out of the country, and incorporate them into his own government and armies. He would leave only the poor in the cities so they couldn't combine and revolt Again, And so Ezekiel, 25-year-old priest, is one of the best and brightest, and he's carried a 1,000 miles away into Babylon, along with some other guys you may have heard of, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, the best and the brightest, carried away. Now, you have to understand, when that happens, most Israelites now live outside of Israel. And they are refugees in Babylon. And put yourself in their place. What kind of questions would you be asking if you were one of those exiles? God, have you abandoned us? Is this it? What's the future? God, you would allow your temple to be destroyed? Lord, you, you mean that the high God of Babylon, Marduk, might be more powerful than Yahweh, the God of Israel? God, what is going on? And those are exactly the kind of questions that God's going to enable Ezekiel to answer to this community of Israelites living in refugee camps in Babylon. Now, that's the historical background of Ezekiel and why he speaks. I want to set it now in the larger arc of the whole Bible story. In Genesis 10 and 11, we read of the Tower of Babel and we read of what they call the Table of Nations, when all the nations were spread around the world. Here is the mission. The mission of God is that he was going to show his glory, how great he is, what matters most. He's going to show his glory to all the nations through one nation, through one man. Abraham. In Genesis 12, God calls Abraham out and he makes this promise to him. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. Why? Here's the mission. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God is going to save the world and spread his salvation to all nations by one nation being his witness, Israel. We see this again and again throughout the Old Testament, reminding Israel of their mission. Now, just before, in Exodus, before he gives them the law, the whole purpose of the law was to have Israel display the character of God before the world. That was why he gave them the law, 
so that the world would see the holiness, the greatness and the glory of God. So he reminds them that the reason I'm giving this to you, this law, is so that you will be a kingdom of priests. Israel's mission was to show people how to connect to God. This is reinforced again in 2 Samuel 7 at the beginning of the monarchy when God tells David, I will always have one of your descendants on the throne and from your descendants will be one who will come one who will bless all the nations. Solomon picks it up in Psalm 72 when he says, all nations will be blessed through him, the descendant of David, and they will call him blessed. The mission of God was for him to show his glory among the nations by having Israel be a kingdom of priests to connect them to God. By the time we get to Ezekiel, Ezekiel is reminding Israel, who now lives in Babylon, of the mission. And he's reminding them, look, what motivates God to save the world is not only that people are lost. It's not only that God is merciful and loving. What his primary motivation to save the world is his glory. That all people would know that he is the greatest and most glorious, that he matters most. If God made us, then he matters most. And because he matters most, if we ignore him, if the nations aren't told about him, that is grievous, that is an injustice. God, because he's great, has to be known. And so that's the glory that motivates everything Israel was supposed to do. In Ezekiel 36, therefore say to the Israelites, here's the mission. This is what the sovereign Lord says, is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. An even deeper indictment in Ezekiel chapter 5. This is what the sovereign Lord says. This is Jerusalem, which I have set in the center of the nations with countries all around her, the mission. Yet, in her wickedness, she has rebelled against my laws and decrees more than the nations and countries around her. She has rejected my laws and has not followed my decrees. In other words, Israel, mission failed. And so God selects one of these priests five years later after the exile. Ezekiel is sitting by a canal near his labor camp. The vision, as we talked about last week, of how great God is comes down to him. And then God, after Israel, uh, Ezekiel sees this shattering vision, God says, now Ezekiel, I want you to talk to the refugees for me. I want you to give my word to Israel. Now, I want us just to stop here for a minute and connect with Ezekiel and how hard this must have been. Remember, Ezekiel's commencement address is the greatest challenge we have in our lives as God because he's asking us to do hard things. So what's he asking Ezekiel to do? Well, imagine, Ezekiel grew up in Jerusalem his dad was a priest, so in, in his world, if your dad was a priest, you were a priest. And your kids would, your sons would be a priest. And on down it went. So Ezekiel had spent his whole 25 years until he's exiled training to be a priest. Well, what was that like? What did a priest have to learn? Priests have to learn, first of all, how to be a butcher. 
you have to cut up the animals, animal husbandry. Second, a priest would have to learn the Torah, the Old Testament. Get this, most priests in Ezekiel's time had the entire Old Testament memorized. Ready, go. He had to learn all the traditions and worship styles of the temple. He had to learn all of Israel's rich history. He even learned the culture around him. He knew the mythologies of surrounding nations. He knew their politics and their economics. If you read Ezekiel, it's all there. He was a brilliant young man, training to be a pastor. But you remember that on the day he should have been ordained as a reverend, He's sitting by an irrigation ditch in the labor camp on probably the most disappointing day of his life because that would have been the day he would have been ordained. But he is a long ways from Jerusalem when God gives him this vision of who he is. But remember how hard this would have been. So he trained all his life to be a priest and now God comes to him and says, no, not a priest, Ezekiel, you will be a prophet. And remember what a prophet was supposed to do? A prophet was supposed to turn with God's words and for God and point to the priests and say, you are off mission. Now that would not have been good for any future job prospects for Ezekiel. And it would have cost him, his peers, his friends, everything to point his finger at the priest and say, you've missed it. This was an amazingly difficult call to become a prophet. In fact, a call that would require courage. There's the mission of God to show his glory among the nations. It costs us. So Ezekiel, you're gonna need courage, and I'm gonna give you the courage to be a prophet, prophetic courage. Let's talk about that, shall we? Three things involved to be and have prophetic courage. First, you need to know your theology. Second, you need to have empathy. And third, you need to have the Holy Spirit living in you. That's the prophetic courage we're talking about. So theology. Look at the call. It comes. God tells Ezekiel, you're going to be a prophet. But the people that you're going to preach to, well, they're going to be the entirely worst possible audience you could ever have. They're not going to like what you have to say. Notice, we've underlined this. If you read, you know, we're always telling you, like in small groups, underline repeated words because that may be a big part of the message. If you underline the word rebellious, it'd be seven times. The word obstinate twice, the word stubborn twice. Overall, what God is saying is, Ezekiel, I want my glory to go to the nations. I want you to call Israel back to mission, but they are not going to like it. In fact, they are going to push back hard against you. They are rebellious, stubborn, and obstinate. Their heart is hard, but you go and preach. What do you think about that? That would be tough. But here's the thing. We are called to do the same thing. Because when we get to the New Testament, Paul, the apostle, writing to the church at Rome, says, look, it's not just the Jews that are hard-hearted, Every single human being since the fall, when we gave the finger to God and we said, we'll take it, bye, we'll live our own lives. Since then, every human being has had a hard, obstinate, stubborn, rebellious heart. The way Paul described it is he says, 
Human beings have exchanged the glory of God to worship human things. Now, in doing that, what we are basically saying is, God, we dispute your wisdom. God, we deny your sovereignty. Leave us alone. The Bible says that. The Bible says that every heart is hard, that no matter who we talk to, we're talking to a hard heart. The Bible isn't the only people saying that, though, the only place where you'd find this. One of my favorite commencement speeches ever was given by the late atheist David Foster Wallace, who in 2005 spoke at Kenyon College and said these words, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some invaluable set of ethical principles is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Uh, Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They are default settings. David Foster Wallace, living in Romans chapter one. We've exchanged the glory of God to worship the glory of human things. And that is the recipe for a hard heart. Now we work against this hard heart all around us. We say, well, what we need is more education. And by the way, we do. But we think education's the savior and can fix all the problems that we have. Or we say technology, if we just have more scientific advancements and technological uh, progress, we will eliminate all the problems. So we strive, or we say, no, it's psychology. We just need to feel better about ourselves, more therapy, more positive ways of viewing who we are. If we just had more of that, the world would be a better place. We keep trying and working and thinking that other things like that will fix things. And again, they'll help. But there is only one thing that can fix and change a human heart, and that is a word from God. Good news that he loves you, and he wants to bring you home, and he wants relationship with you now. That word is what can change a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. A word from God. Water stone. You have that word. You are a witness to Jesus Christ. And so, when we are on mission to God, we lean on our theology. We understand that if we just speak Jesus into a conversation, 
The potential is there to change a heart. Will you lean on your theology? I guess the test is whether you share it or not. So taking the mission of God, the glory, to the nations, sharing him, begins with leaning on our theology, knowing that every human heart is hard, but what can melt the human heart is a word from God, which leads us to how we share it, empathy. The second part of prophetic courage is empathy. Noticed in the text, it goes on to talk about in the vision that Ezekiel's supposed to eat the scroll. And uh, the, the scroll is written on both sides with words of lament and mourning and woe. And the idea here is that Ezekiel, I want you to tell Israel the truth and get them back on mission, but I want you to tell the truth with tears, with lament and mourning coming from your insides. How do we tell the truth? I have a son now who's in seminary, which means he's reading more than me and running circles around me. So he's all the time sending stuff for me to read. And last week he sent me an article. And when he sent it to me, he had a little preface. He said, Deo, I, my son's calling me Deo because I've always been like God to them. But um, <laughs> I, I don't know. Deo, I want you to read this article. And when I read it, I wept. I had a lump in my throat. So I read this article. This article is from the Huffington Post, it's written by a gay man. And he's done a lot of research and what he's discovered is that since gay marriage has been legalized, the levels of suicide and depression in the gay community have continued to rise. In fact, skyrocketing levels of depression and suicide in the gay community since gay marriage has been legalized. And he's wrestling with why, Michael Hobbs, why? And one of the conclusions he comes to, among others, I would invite you to read this article. It's profound. But he says that within the gay community, as a gay man, it's one of the loneliest places to live. In the gay community, why? Because the standards of what attraction is are so high that if you don't meet them, it's the loneliest kind of existence. Here's my point, what I took. What I took out of all of it and reading it was my son's lump in his throat and his tears. We want to go in and tell the truth to Israel and tell the truth to our friends and our family and our, our, tell them the truth. And we start telling them the truth before we've eaten the scroll of lament and mourning. When God says, no, you tell the truth, but you eat the scroll. We want to go up to people struggling with their sexuality, whatever it is, and start beating them with the Bible before we've shed tears for how hard it is to struggle. We are not ready to be prophetic about anything God has said until we've shed tears for the devastation and the loneliness that this kind of struggle brings.
tears come with the truth. And so, Ezekiel, I want you to take my glory to the nations. I want you to tell the truth. You have a message that can turn hearts of stone to hearts of flesh, but I want you to tell it with tears, feeling deeply the devastation of people's conditions. Then, I want you to lean on the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel, like no other author in the Old Testament, talks about the Holy Spirit. In fact, in our text, it begins in chapter two, the Spirit came into me and raised me to my feet. And then at the end of chapter three, we read this, I like this, he lifted, the Spirit lifted me up and took me away. The vision is ending. He's taking him back home to uh, Kibar in Tel Aviv, but uh, from Kibar to Tel Aviv. Um, I sat among them for seven days deeply. But look how Ezekiel's feeling after he gets the call to be a prophet. Bitterness and anger. I, don't, I find that strangely comforter, comforting. <laughs> this word anger is only used a few other times in the Old Testament. One time to describe Esau and one time to describe Cain, who were well known in the Old Testament as losers of temper. Ezekiel is hacked. He does not want to do this. God is going to ask him to turn his life inside out. In fact, you saw a little bit in the video. When we go on into chapters four and five, I want to walk through this quickly. Actually, the end of chapter three. So the spirit comes into Ezekiel to empower him to do what? Well, to neighbor. Let's call it extreme neighboring. Here's what he's calling Ezekiel to do. First, for seven years, the next seven years, I don't want you to say a word to anyone, not even your wife, unless I tell you. Why? Then the people will know that when you're speaking, I'm speaking. Now, while some wives in the rooms might say amen, that's a great strategy. <laughs> Imagine that. Seven years of silence. Then I want you to build a Lego formation. Actually, you know, engrave a, a Babylonian brick. But make a Lego thing and then put a bread griddle there and then you lie down on the other side. And I want you to tell all your neighbors and all the people in the refugee camp that... God is not in Jerusalem, he's out here. God's not gonna help you from in there. In fact, he's your enemy. He's bringing this on. Then, I want you to lie on your left side for 390 days. I don't think Ezekiel did it 24-7. I think he knew his neighborhood enough to know when the high traffic patterns were and when people were walking by. The language used is from Leviticus 16. Ezekiel is supposed to represent God bearing with the sins of his people. A day represented a year. 390 years is when Solomon's temple was built. During this whole time, I've been patient. I've been bearing your sins. 390 days, Ezekiel, I want you to neighbor. Then, oh, I practiced that. <laughs> the last 40 days, I want you to lie on your right side. That is one day for every year that you will be in exile in Babylon. I want you to tell them. I want you to do this street theater, this extreme neighboring, so they get the message. Oh, and by the way, while you're there, I want you to cook. 
I give you six ingredients, you make a barley loaf about the size of a power bar, and I want you to drink a glass of water for 390 days. That would be just enough to keep a 30-year-old man from starving, but he'd be starving. That's what's happening to the people in Jerusalem. Oh, and by the way, I want you to cook it over poop. Emily's question, charcoal, propane, or poop? The priest in Ezekiel comes out, Lord, I can't cook it over poop, human dung. How about cow dung, which was a common form of fuel? That was charcoal. Okay, cow dung. I'll give in to your priestly instincts this one time. He cooks his food. That's a symbol that Ezekiel, every meal you eat is eaten among foreigners now. It's defiled. All of this extreme neighboring. God's spirit comes into Ezekiel and says, Ezekiel, I'm going to turn your life inside out, upside down, but I'm going to show my glory to the world through you. You know, God wants you to neighbor like that. I'm serious. I think he wants you to lie in front of your house every day for a few hours and see what your neighbors think. <laughs> Maybe I'm not serious. Maybe I am. What do you, here's, we have this thing called neighboring. Do you do it? Do you know what neighboring is? We say that this is part of what God wants us to do to show the glory to the nations. He wants us, here's neighboring. One, pray for your neighbors. Do you know all the neighbors' names that live around you, and do you pray for them at least once a week, maybe at your dinner table with your family? Do you pray for your neighbors? That's one. Two, second part of neighboring is you have a covenant that whenever you see a neighbor out, you run. Not away from them, to them. One of our elders, Dennis Vogan, calls it the neighbor covenant. Whenever you see a neighbor out, you run to them. Now, don't stalk them. Like, don't run up and... You drop your lawn tools, you stop your lawnmower, whatever it is, and you go. Because we all know that accumulation is usually deeper 30 seconds at a time. If you keep having these conversations, you will be amazed at where it goes. And so whenever you see a neighbor out, you put your agenda down and you engage. So, prayer, engage, thirdly, invite. You invite them to your home. You use the holidays. The holidays are not just for you. They're for the mission. So Christmas, you have a Christmas party, New Year's party, Memorial Day party, whatever it is, find an excuse to get people in your house or to join a neighbor and host. Street party, whatever it is. Those holidays are not for you. They're for the mission. Halloween's a great one. I mean, the people actually come and ring your doorbell. It's really cool. You use all those things for the mission. And you invite them to things at Waterstone. About once a month, we always have something going on you can bring, or if you really want to freak people out, bring them to a sermon on Ezekiel. <laughs> you neighbor, you turn your life inside out, led by God's spirit, and you show his glory to the world across the street. Now, finally, how do we get the courage to do that? All that, theology, empathy, Spirit-led neighboring. Well, here quickly is where it comes from. It comes from knowing that you're loved. You see, when the Holy Spirit, God says he pours it into our hearts so that we will always know the Father loves us and we say, Abba, Father. When you know you're loved by the God of the universe who made you and has your name 
engraved on his palm. When you know you're loved, you can do hard things. My niece, we were out dinner last night. My niece, she's a college student up in the Northwest, and uh, she and this guy, she's a freshman. She's never really had a serious boyfriend before, and she's interested in this one guy, and it seems he's a little interested in her. The only thing is, Austin, he's a runner, like a serious runner. Like three weeks ago, he ran a 50K race. I had to do the math. That's 31 miles. He's a runner, but he's sweet on my niece. And so he says, Morgan, would you like to go for a run? And Morgan is a princess. She is like, she's not run since she was three years old in my backyard. She's not, no athleticism in her. And she says, sure. <laughs> and so they meet in the morning and they go for a four mile run. And she pukes at the end of it. <laughs> So we're giving her all this grief last night. I said, Morgan, what, what gives? And she says, I like him a lot. <laughs> when you know you're loved, you can do hard things. And so you know his love and you see his glory. When we see that God, as God, is the one who matters most. We can do hard things. See, our problem is, I think sometimes we confuse the American dream with the vision of God. And we think what life means is a two-bedroom, three-bedroom house, two-car garage, kids in every event under the sun, good job that's very satisfying, great social life, skiing on the weekends, all these things, and we got our heads down, and we're doing all this stuff, and we've lost sight of what matters most. Waterstone, we cannot sacrifice the glory of God in the pursuit of good things. We need to see the greatest thing, and that's God and his mission. What does that mean? That means you use the good things that you have, even the good things, for the mission. So are you signed up? Are you ready to leave here? The mission of God fueled by prophetic courage Thus ends the commencement address of Ezekiel. Now, let us sing it back to God. Through this song, 10,000 Reasons, let's commit again to the mission of God. Let's stand, let's sing. To learn more about Waterstone, please visit waterstonechurch.org.